I definitely had an unfortunate arty bent. Being a rural kid, you didn't get to do any events or activities or things that required you to stay after school. So the only thing I was allowed to be in was 4-H beef. Mm. So I know how to show and groom cattle. And I once won a prize for judging cattle. So there you go. Wow. This, that's not on my CV. So that's just <laughs> like exclusive to this, this occasion. Hi, I'm Theo Finnegan from the English Department at Vancouver Island University. You're listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities, a show that introduces you to the people and passions of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at Vancouver Island University and shares stories about events and projects happening on campus. In this episode, I'm speaking with Marnie Stanley, outgoing Dean of Arts and Humanities, who on Friday, March 10th, from 10 to 11.30 in the Malaspina Theatre, will give a presentation titled, Holding Space for Queerness in the Classroom. So you started teaching at VIU in 1994? That's correct, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what's changed since then? Everything. <laughs> so um, in 1994, we were a community college. Um, then we very quickly became a university college and then a university about 15 years ago. So all of those transitions, um, which were, you know, included transitions in, in degree development, um, the the range of subjects, um, decisions about um, where we fit in the provincial education picture, where the government felt we fit, where we wanted to fit. You know, so just a lot of transition. And but at the same time, keeping that heart of being very much here and people liking that feeling of still having that access of a community college, where. Um, we try not to do too much gatekeeping at the front end. So we still, you know, all that assessment of students and marking and exams and all the things that create anxiety for everyone. But at the same time, trying to to not, you know, just flip a switch and become elitist. Keep that community focus and that access focus. So I like that mix. And you've you've had a lot of different roles, I would imagine, over that time, right? Like Dean being your most recent one. Uh-uh. Did you start as contract sessional Yes, I was yeah. a sessional. Um, so I was interviewed, and I'm going to talk about my job interview because of what happened at it um, as part of my colloquium. But um, So I was interviewed for the first of many interviews in, in um, summer of 94. And uh, I taught in two departments uh, most of the time, but I actually taught in four departments altogether. Mm. Um, very briefly in media studies and liberal studies, but my homes were English and what was then women's studies but became studies in women and gender. And I've done a lot of work for the faculty association, the union for the um, VUFA faculty, and including, uh, I think, five different roles on the executive, including president, and was the first queer president of the union, so I feel very proud of that. And then uh, administrative work as well. So, yeah, lots of changes. Stepping back a little bit, your journey to get to here in 1994. I know you did your MA at Alberta, which is also where I did my doctorate. So we share that. And then Oxford for your DPhil. And then, then, then to VIU. So how did that journey kind of unfold? I grew up in northern Alberta in a rural community. I went to school in a town called Westlock. 
And then, as you say, uh, the University of Alberta, where I did my uh, BA and MA. Uh, then I went over to England, and I lived there for eight years. And when I came back, I really wanted to be on the West Coast because my mother was from the West Coast. And mm. because we were sort of poor farmers, we never holidayed anywhere that wasn't free. <laughs> so all our holidays when we got one, which wasn't very often, were to the West Coast, to her, to her siblings, basically. And so I had one of her sisters lived here on the island. One of her brothers lived here for many years until he was killed in the logging industry. Uh, her other sibling, the one she was closest to, lived in Chilliwack, which was where they were from. My, my mother grew up in Rosedale on the shore of Lake Harrison. And her whole married life, she regretted leaving British Columbia. <laughs> and we always had pictures of the Fraser Valley and Mount Shiam in particular, which was her favorite mountain. And every few years she would get a new photo. And we always came here if we got a chance to go anywhere. And so at first I found work as a sessional in Vancouver and I taught uh, one year exclusively at UBC, one year as a postdoc at SFU, and then two years split between the two schools, teaching in both English and women's studies in both schools. And then I got a chance to come here and it was a hard decision because it was sessional work and I had sessional work there, but I liked I liked the look of the institution and the spirit of the institution. Mm. I'm curious about what it was like going to Oxford, so late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, I arrived there in 82 and I left in 1990. And Oxford is, it has the problem of too much history. Mm. So it's constantly concerned about its reputation. It makes it risk averse. Oxford has incredible snobs. So I have to say, it does give you snob immunity. Because Canadian snobs the, the... are rank amateurs. <laughs> I mean, a British, a good British mm-hmm. Oxford snob, mm-hmm. in Boris like Johnson was a great creme. example, right? Yeah. They are so disgusting mm-hmm. that they make Canadian yeah. snobs seem like they don't even know what they're doing. Um, <laughs> so that that's good. You get you get immunity from that, and. On the queer angle, Oxford, of course, had a long history of harboring especially queer men because it had been a male-only institution for a very, very, very long time, by which I mean, you know, 500 years. Mm. But at the same time, it was hostile, you know, because of the time and because of Thatcher. Mm. And Clause 28 was passed when I lived there, and Clause 28 made it illegal for educators in Britain to say anything positive about homosexuality right. or what the legislation called the pretend family status of homosexuals. Oh. And that concept of the pretend family um, was inc- incredibly hurtful. You know, the idea that your your partnerships, your strong bonds, your your family that is your family of, of bonding rather than of blood, because a lot of queer people were at that time and still are rejected by their birth families. Uh, the idea that that's a pretend thing and shouldn't be presented to young people as a positive mm. uh, thing. On the one hand, it generated the most spectacular, fabulous protests. The lesbian Avengers were born and they, they literally taught themselves to breathe fire. Wow. So they would show up at Piccadilly Circus breathing fire. They abseiled into the House of Lords, like it's all incredible. these lesbians flying down on these old farts. <laughs> it was great. So they were they broke into the BBC and interrupted the six o'clock news. So that was fun. Um, as you were speaking, I was thinking of Florida and other places where, where you know. So a lot of what you're talking about on, on first hearing you know, it sounds so archaic, right? Like, yes. and so much has changed, and yet. 
there are these places, many places in the world, in our part of the world included, where that is what's happening again. Yes. And yeah. it's uh, saddening and depressing. There is a whole large, international, well-funded, largely religious-driven movement against what they call gender. They literally hold up signs that say, stop gender. I don't mm. even know what that means. Like, I, I, Sounds quite illogical. <laughs> it's, it's insane. But people feel so threatened by the idea that these aren't fixed categories. Mm. You know, that you don't know the gender of your child at a fixed level for their whole lives or that you don't know the sexuality of somebody. Mm. I had a weird experience as a femme lesbian when I first was coming out that some people would argue with me and say that I wasn't a lesbian because I wasn't butch. Mm. <laughs> and, mm. and they would actually sit and argue with me as if I didn't know. Yeah. You know? And I found that tr the very first time it happened, I thought it was completely bizarre and insane. But then it happened a few more times and I realized where it was coming from and what, because they had... They wanted to think that they always knew. And in fact, one of them said that to me. Right. She said, I always know when somebody's queer or right. homosexual or whatever she said, um, because I can tell, you know. And I thought, okay, but I'm sitting here next to you saying I am and you're saying I'm not. Like, how is that working? Like, how do you imagine this conversation concluding? You're going to persuade me out of it? Mm. Um, and I think the... The gender wars we're in now, and I look at some of the laws that are being passed in the states, and and the, you know, that it would be a felony, a felony for a medical professional to treat a child who needs help. That is just that doesn't even make sense that you mm. would treat a doctor that way, let alone the child they're trying to help. Mm. That you would risk throwing somebody out of a profession that you need that's incredibly valuable to the culture. Because they wanted to help a patient that was a minor. And now some states are looking at trying to make it illegal to help adults transition. Mm -hmm. And there's all this fear-mongering. I was listening to a podcast last night, and they were talking about how the New York Times wrote an article about the number of minors, mostly 17 and 18 years old in states where 19 is the age mm -hmm. of majority, who'd had top surgery for transition. And it was 244, I think, for the entire country in the last year that they had recorded, which I think was 2021. Mm. And that's pretty, in a country of, what is it now, over 400 million, that's a pretty tiny, tiny number. Mm. And yet more than 5,000 young women had breast uh, right. enhancement surgery to have bigger breasts under the age of majority when you haven't even finished growing. Why isn't that a scary issue? They're having silicone implants for mm. no good reason. Mm. Um, and, or mostly no good reason. There may be some who have, you know, something like Poland syndrome or, or uh, had cancer very early or something like that. But the majority of those would be purely uh, aesthetic choices. And yet that's not an issue. But the issue of transition, I just find... I find it bewildering how much people care about other people's bodies. Mm. Like to me, the only body that matters, and I don't mean matters in the sense that I don't care about the existence of other bodies, but my own body matters, how I care or don't care for it. And the body of my partner matters in that that's who I interact with yeah. in an intimate way. But everybody else's body is their body. Yeah. And if they're not imposing it on me, 
then I don't need to engage with their body. I engage with them as whoever they are, as a human that presents to me. But I don't need to know what they are. I don't need to know what their genitals are. I don't need to know anything except whatever they want to talk about. Hello, this is Todd Barsby of the Faculty of Science and Technology at Vancouver Island University, and you are listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities on CHLY 11.7 FM Nanaimo. Obviously, it's a complicated issue, but do you think to an extent the kind of moral panic around the, the, those kinds of issues are, I mean, to what extent are they kind of like deeply held beliefs versus sort of p- political pragmatism where if you can kind of split people in, in the States on an issue, that's, that's, the, that's the goal in a lot of ways now, right, is to, is to create division so that you can presumably sow or, or reap political gain. Um, you know, that, that given you're, you were talking about, you know, the, that the, the numbers of people having those operations are really small relative to population. Um, what sort of explains that moral panic? Um, trans, just transphobia, homophobia, or um, is, like I'm wondering if there's a sort of calculation here for a lot of people, uh, yeah. pol- politicians, right? I think you're right. I think some people, I think Ron DeSantis exploits a lot of these things and doesn't care about follow-up. Like if you look right. at a lot of his hate um, mongering, he starts a fight and says, we're going to do this, we're going right. to whatever. And then he doesn't actually care, it seems, in terms of legislature, in some of these instances, whether he follows up or not. He looks at how well it lands, how much news he gets right. out of it, and then he picks the ones that seem to have the best legs mm-hmm. because he wants to be president. It doesn't really seem that he necessarily believes what he's doing any more than the recent revelation that Fox News was talking about Mm. how fake a lot of the election, so-called election steal was. They were having conversations while they were out there reporting that it was true. (laughs) But in-house, they were admitting that it wasn't true. And I think a lot of people are having opinions about things that they wouldn't normally have opinions about, but the algorithms of social media. And I have to confess, I'm somebody who belongs to nothing. I have no Instagram, no Pinterest, no TikTok, no Facebook, no nothing. Um, I would have died happy not existing on the internet at all, but my job puts me there in some minor uh, way. Um, But I think that, you know, these these algorithmic models that you you check one thing out of curiosity and then you get um, all this stuff. Like I had a student come to see me very upset because she'd been accused of transphobia by a student who was trans in her program. Mm. And I asked her what had occurred. And she told me that she had been telling them about what she'd been reading on the internet. But what she had been reading on the internet was terrible. It Mm. was ridiculous and absurd. And it was arguing that... Teachers in the United States were actually determining the the gender of children and shooting them up with hormones in the classroom. And I said to her, do you not realize how absurd that is that in the most litigious country in the world, the idea that teachers would do that, that endocrinologists are rarely rare and there are only 60 gender affirming uh, clinics in the entire United States. And you think teachers are just doing this in school? You think that makes sense? Like you have an, a, you have an obligation as a university student to think about the credibility yeah. of your sources. And you need to not be telling a trans person stupid things you read on the internet. You need to be reading trans people. You need to be reading, you know, 
legitimate sources, uh, proper journals or medical mm. sources. You know, you you can't. You have to take some responsibility for the fact that you offended somebody by reading garbage and then spewing it at them. Mm. Um, and so you may not feel you're transphobic, but you did a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And you need to to be honest about that. And you need to think about what you're learning. And I think that's the problem is people, the, the proliferation of media flattens the notion of authority and expertise. Yes. And so the idea that everything out there is an equal voice yes. is very distressing disruptive to vulnerable people of all kinds, whether it's race, economic class, migrancy. And I come from a, my my ancestors were all economic migrants. My grandmother on my father's side was a housemaid. You know, they all came to Canada to get get away from poverty or to try to have a better opportunity. But we see all of these ways in which, and Chomsky was really good on, like he said that one of the things America always does, and it's not just America, but He's right that America does it, but we do it too. That you, when you have an oppressed minority, you give them more power, you make them more threatening. So there's all this stuff about trans women in washrooms and trans, you know, women as some kind of threat to mm. biological born women or whatever the category is called. And you get this blown out of all proportion kind of. So they're given more power than they actually have, and then they're in the media, and then they're given that power in order to oppress them through law and legislation. Mm. And Chomsky gave a great analysis of that like decades ago, and it's still out there. And we have to we have to be watchful for it, not just around like trans issues or gender issues, but around all the different ways that um, minorities that are struggling for a place at the table mm. are treated that way. They're treated as a threat, and then once that once they're established as a threat in the narrative, then you can start containing them. I always used to teach a sort of intro class to, to literature and culture on monsters and monster narratives. Mm-hmm. And the more I taught it over the years, I find that all of these narratives tended to be about how you make up the monster you need to then discipline your society. Like on some level, all of the, whatever, whether they were, you know, it was fairy, a fairy tale, um, a gothic fiction from the Victorian period right up to there's a great uh, M. Night Shyamalan movie called The Village which is which seems to be about a, a community in, in something like Pennsylvania in the 19th century and they're very uh, withdrawn and very isolated uh, you know sort of seem quasi-religious um, everyone's wearing bonnets and, and whatever right and they've withdrawn beyond this forest but then they make up the story, that the, the grown-ups make up the story of monsters in the woods to keep everyone inside this village, inside this forest, away from the modern world. And, and, and so all of these stories that I was teaching were, were about what you're describing, which is that you, know, you create a scapegoat effectively or, or a threat, mm-hmm. which then lets you um, kind of do what you want politically and legally, right? Yeah. Benjamin Franklin said, if you, you know, if you give up your freedom for safety, you deserve neither. Mm. Because and we do that. We, we hole up in our communities behind walled, walled uh, suburbs and things like that because of the violence out there. Yeah. And the violence out there is always others. It's immigrant communities. It's mm. racialized communities. It's queers. I remember when I first moved to Vancouver, my uncle who lived in um, Coquitlam 
they had me over for dinner, my aunt and uncle, and they, he said, stay off the paths in Stanley Park because they're full of gay men cruising. And I'm like, what could be safer for a woman yeah. than gay men cruising? Like, all women should know where the gay men are cruising so mm-hmm. they can go for a walk. It just, I thought, what am I, what am I supposed to be afraid of in that sentence? And, um, you know, I just, I found it bewildering and amusing. But at the same time, it was really clear that he had a lot of anxiety about gay men. And it's a human habit to to other and to worry about the other as a threat to us, whether they're going to come and take our stuff or eat our food or marry our children or uh, take over our community and whether they are other because they're racialized or because their gender or sexuality is different or their economic class or background or religion or whatever, all of those things. Um, It makes it very complicated. And I know like for me, as a queer person, I'm always nervous about religious people because I've had so many encounters with religious people being very hostile. Mm. And I've had students uh, tell me I shouldn't be allowed to teach or tell me that I should enter a 12-step program and get cured mm-hmm. um, and all this kind of thing. And so I tend to have an automatic kind of wall come up if I recognize quickly from their language or something they say or because they just say that they belong to this or that faith, that I'm nervous about how they're going to uh, receive the fact that I'm a homosexual. So I too do it, right? Because it's a safety thing. Hmm. And in some instances, it's a real safety thing. And in some instances, it's not. It's just a fear. Um, but we're all trained to have that sort of sense of what what are the you know to threat assess, <laughs> um, and and but we overdo it and we do it when we don't need to do it. But then we also see, especially in the United States right now, very explicit laws on women's reproductive rights, right. and really going after women's reproductive rights, and so. Um, you know, how do those two things relate? How does the policing of gender in gender difference and gender change uh, and the notion that gender is mutable or fluid or unfixed, how does that relate to the legal attacks on the sort of historic figure of the female and the reproductive rights of a woman in that era of her life? But it's scary. It's scary to see rights going backwards, it reminds us how fragile our rights are, that they're not, we're not in a progressive world where everything will always get better. People attack rights and they try to roll them back. And in many instances, they're successful. We were in a meeting the other day, you you and I, and you said something really powerful, I thought, and interesting, which is the the Gramsci quote about pessimism of the intellect, optimism of of the the will. will. I'd never actually heard that before. But it's a neat way to think of things because it is really easy to be pessimistic about a whole whack of things these days, right? I I have two young kids and I think about the the, the world they're going to be in uh, in in the future when I'm gone maybe, Uh, hopefully not for a while. But um, I I worry about them, right, and and other people. And it's hard to stay optimistic. But that that kind of – I don't know if it's a dialectic or what, but but having those two – um, ideas and tension. I, I thought about that a lot the last few days, and it's a way of kind of looking forward, I suppose. It's a way of surviving because I think if you're an informed person, 
you know, there's a lot of bad news. I mean, I'm not a doom scroller because I don't subscribe to any of that. But, but nonetheless, just the real, the actual like old fashioned, old school media news is pretty doomy. Yeah. Um, so if you're an informed person, it's hard not to be pessimistic. And frankly, I've lost a lot of the fights I've been in, both, you know, from the view for point of view, from, mm. um, you know, even as an administrator, I've tried to fight some fights that I've just been totally crushed. Uh, and, but you have to keep going, right? Like there's no giving up until you die and then it's over and you're good. But up until that point, uh, as long as your brain's still functioning, there's an obligation to be an active citizen in the world and doing your best. And so that pessimism is going to creep in if you're a thinking human. Mm. And so to separate it for me, Gramsci's separation, and you're right, it creates a kind of dialectic, but it says that, you know, as a human, I am optimistic for my species and for the children, and I'm going to do what I can to build mm. the world in the direction I want. Mm. And even if I fail mm. and I'm defeated, as long as I'm going in the right direction – there was a lawyer that fought. She was the woman, the first out LGBT lawyer that fought a case in front of the American Supreme Court that was on LGBT rights, and she lost, as you'd expect, in the 70s. And and she ended up actually dying quite young from cancer. But she said, you know, you keep going. You keep doing these cases. You keep fighting these fights because basically it's like compost. You're putting good stuff yeah. into the bin, and you will create fertile ground, but you may not live to see it. You know, I think about all the great suffragettes of the yeah. 18th and 19th century and many some of those women lived to get the vote, but many of them didn't live to get the vote. They fought their entire adult lives for what was a reasonable thing, half the population to have the right to vote. And and they just kept going even though they didn't see it come to fruition. And so that's my kind of theory of the optimism side mm. that as long as you're putting good stuff in the compost bin, You've got nothing to answer for. You've got nothing to apologize for. I mean, it's Dr. King too, right? Like, I'm, I'm not going to see the promised land, maybe, but yeah. and he didn't. But um, you, you create the conditions for other other people and for other futures, right? You've been listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to Marnie Stanley for joining us today. Technical production on this episode by Robin Davies. Our theme music is by Greg Bush. For more information and to hear other episodes of Conversations in the Arts and Humanities, please visit conversationspodcast.ca. My name's Theo Finnegan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>